history tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 99th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on this episode, we're going to go to Canada, as suggested by our listener, Tanya Turner. She wanted to hear about Fort Edmonton in Alberta. All right. We like going north, only virtually, though. Right now, it would be way too cold otherwise. <laughs> yeah, we feel sorry for you guys that are there on the East Coast at least northeast coast. <laughs> you guys are really getting slammed. We've been seeing all the pictures on Facebook of our listeners and such. And wow, lots and lots of snow. We remember those days back in Colorado. Yes, we do. Denise, we do want to send a special thank you out to our spectacular crew for always being there to have our back and such. We got a rather scathing and lengthy negative comment, which not only attacked the show, but us personally over on our website. And so we shared it with the spectacular crew and you guys just did your best to make us feel good and all that stuff. And Denise, we always get a lot of great comments about the show and people telling us how much they love it, but it's always those negative ones that for some reason, I guess it's because we're human, stick with us. But this individual had listened to 16 minutes of the show and basically judged us on just 16 minutes of a show. Well, I think what was tough is that they said that we disregard negative feedback and it's not a disregarding of the negative feedback or I don't want to say they were calling it feedback. So I don't want to say negative, but something that they didn't like about how the show was done. But it's not that we disregard that. They didn't like too much chatter again or talking besides just the topic. But the whole thing is, is A, that is history goes bump and we don't disregard their feedback. Sometimes the answer is no. Exactly. You know, we are changing the format up a little bit. What we're going to do is move reviews to the end of the show. So if you're like, where did the reviews go? They will be coming and we will be stretching things out. If you don't hear your reviews or necessarily your comments on this show, they'll probably be on a future show because we don't want to pick and choose who we talk about on the show or what we include on the show. So we're going to try to make it so that it's not quite so lengthy here at the beginning. But we have a lot of people who absolutely love the personal feel and that's what makes us unique. And that's really what the Spooktacular crew was saying is that they they liked that it was about the community of History Goes Bump. So History Goes Bump is not just Diane and myself. It's not haunted places. History Goes Bump is the community of listeners that spend time talking about haunted places and different things. And so we will never get rid of that. Because personally, I don't even think I'd want to do the show if we just got on here, read a ghost story or two, talked about a haunted place and went away and didn't really interact with those people that we have gotten to know so well. Well, believe me, Denise, it would save us a ton of time if we didn't answer every comment, every email, every tweet, if we didn't pay attention to the people out there. Uh, time that's not, Yeah, that's not who we yeah. are. So it's not going to happen. Yeah. So just for the good news, there will be more meetups in 2016 and more fun and more contests on your way. And if you want to know more about the show, you can check out our website at historygoesbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we have a fabulous email that I'd gotten about a guy's personal experience that he had. He's a skeptic, but he had a strange dream. We're going to save that for the end of the show as well, because he's wanting some feedback about it. So we're going to share that and get some feedback from the listeners about it. And 
And also at the end, we are going to have a little announcement about a design contest that we are running. So you want to stick around for that as well. We want to thank Alexis, who's with the Grand Rapids Ghost Investigators. She sent us an email with a video that they did of an investigation that they conducted at St. Cecilia Music Center back in November. She saw our show and said, hey, we were out there and they're going to be out there again, I think in February, she said. So what I did is I took their video and I put it up in the show notes for St. Cecilia Music Center, which you can find over at our blog. All you got to do is click on the blog tab on the website and you'll be able to find that. That's episode 98. Julie Rassak, who's with the Ghosts of Grand Rapids Tours and co-wrote the book of the same name, joined me, Denise, for our last Haunted True Crime. And it was an awesome episode. So uh, we put that out for our executive producers, five bucks a month. You can get access to that one and all the other ones. And we also have something else that we're noodling around for people who are at that $5 and above level, maybe a quarterly virtual meetup kind of thing. So we might be adding that to the roster. We got some comments on the website, Denise, to share with people. And this one is from Amanda Silva. Hello, Denise. Hello, Diane. I recently left a post on the Facebook page. I wanted to say thank you so much for replying to my comment. It was truly great to receive a response. Most comments on fan pages never receive comments, let alone actually read by the owner, usually just a number to most. Then you two blew my socks off. You mentioned me on the show. Wow, I was so excited. I stopped my work and had my whole team at work listen. You could say I was starstruck. Truly made my day. So happy I teared up with joy. Thank you. Also, you'll both be glad to know I have a few co-workers listening now. I love the paranormal and history. Your podcast is the best of both and has completely inspired our next road trip, Haunted California. Muhahaha. I'll be sure to let you know where it takes us. And so thank you for sharing that, Amanda, and welcome to your fellow co-workers that are listening now. Michelle Dupree said, I'm late to the party because I just found you guys. I'm on Facebook with the Spook Crew. I love your podcast. I did find something interesting to add. And this is about the Biltmore Estate that we did. Oh, I can't remember how many, what episode that was. But she said, you guys, I think, mentioned that the Vanderbilts lost all of their fortune, which we did. Actually, what I found is that Gloria Vanderbilt did have her inheritance, a large one at that. I believe her mother did a bit of squandering while she was in charge of it. And when Gloria Vanderbilt came of age, she cut her mother out and gave the that had been going to her mother to some charity for children. <laughs> oh my. She had even been removed from her mother's custody. It's a huge custody battle, Whitney versus Vanderbilt. She also had some financial misfortune because she had a lawyer who cheated her. Anyways, I thought it was very interesting because she is a successful artist and designer. And uh, then she added a few more messages. We were talking a little bit about how Anderson Cooper, she said, you're not getting any inheritance. You've got to do it on your own. And he was glad that she had done that because he got to where he was all on his own. And she apologized, Denise, for bombarding us with so many messages, but she's a stay-at-home mom. So we completely understand. Occasionally, you just need to get that activity with adults out there. Like she considers us adults. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and this next one is from O'Reilly. Hey, Denise and Diane. I've been listening to your podcast for a few weeks now, along with my regular rotation of a few others. Listening, I had almost forgotten how obsessed I was with history. I've been looking for something since my marriage ended, and it finally clicked. I never felt so whole as when I was learning something new because of yours, along with a few other podcasts, have convinced me. I'm finally taking the steps to go back to college and share my passion for history with others. I've enrolled to get my teaching degree. Growing up down the road from the Crescent in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, my hometown being directly attached to a Civil War battlefield, I've always had a passion for the past. Thank you so much for reminding me of that. Keep it up, ladies. I appreciate all you do. And then this from Jerry. I found your podcast 
around the time you did the Peoria State Hospital. I've been downloading and listening to your past shows since then. I really enjoy them all. Keep up the great work, ladies. Vicki says, I'm a newcomer to the podcast and enjoy it very much. I enjoy history and your podcast allows me to become a part of it. I like to listen to you late into the night. So look out. Make sure you have the lights on if you're doing that. Thank you for all your research and hard work. Well, thank you, Vicki. And Dee said, I listen to your podcast at work. Here's another one at night. The only one in the office and the only light on is the one directly over my desk. <laughs> there is no way. Ambiance is everything. What was that behind you, Dee? Did you hear that? I really enjoy the history and topics and I'm impressed with the research you both do for each podcast. And then she went on to suggest a couple of interesting locations for us. So thank you for that. I also want to send a shout out to a new follower over on Twitter. Ginger, thanks so much for tweeting to us and sharing our show with those people who are following you. And we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Anthony. Hey, Anthony. Amanda. Hey, Amanda. Yamtob. Hi, Yamtob. Charlie. Hey, Charlie. Nicole. Hi, Nicole. John with just an N. There's no H in there. Hi, John with just an N. Ashley. Hey, Ashley. Melissa. Hi, Melissa. And Kathy with a C. And Kathy with a C. Welcome. Denise, are you ready to go to the fort? I am. Here we go. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash history goes bump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. Something peculiar has been happening at a beach in Cornwall, England. Pieces of Legos have been washing up on shore. And as if that were not strange enough, it has been happening for 17 years. While children might be praising God that fish have learned to poop out Legos... The cause for this is rather mundane. On February 13, 1997, a shipping container from a New York-bound Tokyo Express freighter was hit by a huge wave. The container contained 5 million Lego pieces, and it tumbled into the ocean. Ever since that happened, anytime there's a harsh storm, Lego pieces wash up on the beach. Oddly, the Lego pieces all have a nautical theme, like seaweed, spear guns, octopuses, and scuba gear. Plastic dragons and daisies have also been known to wash up on the beach occasionally. British writer Tracy Williams created a Facebook page called Lego Lost at Sea, and any recovered Lego pieces are documented there. Williams has said, quote, These days the Holy Grail is an octopus or a dragon. I only know of three octopuses being found, and one was by me, in a cave in Chalaboro, Devon. It's quite competitive. If you heard that your neighbor had found a green dragon, you'd want to go out and find one yourself, end quote. While the explanation is clear, Legos washing up on a beach certainly is odd. And we would like to add that since we are featuring a haunted site in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada today, we should mention the website oddmonton.ca that features oddities and curiosities in Edmonton. Scared yet? Boo! <laughs> Thank you. 
This Day in History. And This Day in History is by Jade Lewis. On this day, January 25th in 1890, Nellie Bly arrives in New Jersey after her 72-day trip around the world. Nellie Bly was the pen name of American journalist Elizabeth Cochran Seaman. She was also a writer, industrialist, inventor, and a charity worker who is widely known for this record-breaking trip in emulation of Jules Verne's fictional character Phileas Fogg and an expose in which she faked insanity to study a mental institution from within. She was a pioneer in her field and launched a new kind of investigative journalism. In 1888, Bly suggested to her editor at the New York World that she take a trip around the world, attempting to turn the fictional around the world in 80 days into fact for the first time. A year later, at 9.40 a.m. on November 14, 1889, she boarded the Augusta Victoria, a steamer of the Hamburg-America line, and began her 24,899-mile journey. She brought with her the dress that she was wearing, a sturdy overcoat, several changes of underwear, and a small travel bag carrying her toiletry essentials. She carried most of her money in a bag tied around her neck. The New York newspaper, Cosmopolitan, sponsored its own reporter, Elizabeth Binslin, to beat the time of both Phileas Fogg and Bly. Binslin would travel the opposite way around the world. To sustain interest in the story, the world organized a Nellie Bly guessing match, in which readers were asked to estimate Bly's arrival time to the second, with the grand prize consisting at first of a free trip to Europe and, later on, spending money for the trip. On her travels around the world, Bly went through England, France, where she met Jules Verne in Amiens, Berdinsky, the Suez Canal, Colombo, Ceylon, and the Straits settlements of Penang and Singapore, Hong Kong, and Japan. The development of efficient submarine cable networks and the electric telegraph allowed Bly to send short progress reports, though longer dispatches had to travel by regular post and thus were often delayed by several weeks. Bly traveled using steamships and the existing railroad systems, which caused occasional setbacks, particularly on the Asian leg of her race. During these stops, she visited a leper colony in China, and she bought a monkey in Singapore. As a result of rough weather on her Pacific crossing, she arrived in San Francisco on the White Star Liner Oceanic on January 21st, two days behind schedule. However, world owner Pulitzer chartered a private train to bring her home, and she arrived back in New Jersey on January 25, 1890 at 3.51 p.m. History Goes Bump Podcast. Thank you to our research assistant, Jade Lewis, and listener, Tanya Turner, who also suggested this location. Fort Edmonton is a settlement that dates back to the true beginnings of Canada becoming an official country and to Alberta becoming a province. It moved many times and witnessed much history. It played a key role in history with both European settlers and the natives that lived on the land. 
Is this why its current location at Fort Edmonton Park seems to have unexplained activity? Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Fort Edmonton. The area that is now known as Alberta, Canada, was first settled by the Indian tribes, the Cree, Blackfoot, and Blood. These tribes were semi-nomadic and traveled following the buffalo herds. These native people traveled in groups of lodges, which was a term used to identify a group that shared a teepee as a family unit. And I had never known that, Denise, that they considered a teepee a lodge, basically, for them. Yeah, I did not know that either until this episode. The Blackfoot traveled as 10 to 30 lodges, which could equal up to 240 members. In 1670, King Charles II of England granted trading rights to the Hudson Bay Company for Alberta, which was called Rupert's Land. The land was named for the king's cousin, Rupert. He was the one who got the royal charter and land grants for the, quote, the governor and company of adventurers of England trading into Hudson Bay, end quote. That is a really long name. Could you imagine trying to put that on a business card? It'd be like, and turn over for the rest of the name. <laughs> exactly. We are the company of adventurers of England trading into Hudson Bay. The Hudson Bay Company is much better for sure. I definitely think so. The Hudson Bay is considered the Great Inland Sea. The Hudson Bay Company named itself for the sea, and they made it a practice early on to build their forts near the water. They would trade with the native people there, exchanging metal goods like knives and kettles and special items like beads and blankets for fur pelts. In the late 18th century, the company was forced to move operations more inland. It is believed that Anthony Henday was the first European to explore Alberta for the Hudson Bay Company, but that was not until 1754, so they got the charter in 1670, but it took them until 1754 to actually follow up with that. <laughs> Sounds like our current government. Yeah, typical government. <laughs> Before him, French fur traders more than likely had come and many had intermingled with the Indian tribes, creating a new race known as the Matisse. The Matisse would go on to establish itself in present-day Manitoba. Today, there are approximately 400,000 Matisse in Canada. The word Matisse is French for mixed. A rivalry began with another company called the Northwest Company, when they built a fort in the region in 1778. They fought over territories and trading for years. Finally, in 1821, the Hudson Bay Company absorbed the Northwest Company. The early history of Alberta is tied heavily to this fur trading. Alberta eventually became a province in 1905. The town of Edmonton was selected as her capital. The city of Edmonton was an area bought by the Canadian government from the Hudson Bay Company in 1870. In 1892, Edmonton would formally be incorporated as a town. Not many called the place home until the Klondike Gold Rush started in 1896, and Edmonton became a hub for supplies. In 1930, Edmonton became the gateway to the north, and when oil was discovered there in 1947, its economy changed forever. But before Alberta was a province, and before Edmonton was a city, the Hudson Bay Company founded Fort Edmonton. Fort Edmonton was established on the northern Saskatchewan River in 1795 by the Hudson Bay Company as a fortified trading post next to its rival Northwest Company. We mentioned earlier that the Northwest Company had built a fort in 1778. That was Fort Augustus. Due to the competitive nature of both trading companies, it was said that the two forts were built a musket shot apart in distance. Wow, that uh, makes it a little bit more convenient to shoot at each other, I guess. I guess so. It's like, hey, we don't like the competition. We'll just... <laughs> I don't know. Different way to do business. I was going to say, can you imagine <laughs> businesses that way nowadays? McDonald's would be shooting over at Burger King. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Especially since they're usually right across the street from each other. Yeah. 
It was John Peter Prudent, a clerk for the Hudson Bay Company, who named the fort after Edmonton, Middlesex, England. Both trading posts, Edmonton and Augustus, were moved several times, but they retained their names. Fort Edmonton was home to several Canadian historical figures, such as the first woman from European descent to live in the region, French-Canadian Marie-Anne Gabary, grandmother to Louis Riel, the founder of the province of Manitoba. Also, from 1826 to 1853, the fort thrived under the management of the colorful John Rorwin, a fur trader who was from Montreal, who remained at the fort until his death in 1854, once he was appointed to the fort. He was called, quote, one of the most pushing, bustling men in service, warm-hearted and friendly in an extraordinary degree, end quote. He was known as Iron Shirt by the Native Americans and was considered one of the most influential white men in the Saskatchewan Plains. As mentioned, Fort Edmonton was moved several times. Each time that it was moved was coined as a mark. There are five marks for the fort. The first was built in 1795 and lasted until 1801. Several years of declining and increasingly scarce firewood caused the fort to be moved upstream to what is now the Rossdale area in downtown Edmonton. The second mark was built in 1801 and lasted until 1810 when it was moved to the mouth of White Earth Creek, 100 kilometers northeast from the modern city of Edmonton, to Smoky Lake, Alberta, and the third mark was built. This one stood from 1810 to 1812. The Indians would not trade at this location, and so it was moved again. wonder why they didn't want to trade there. It must have been something about not being near the water. or Yeah, I'm not sure. It's like they were trading with the other ones, just not that one. Yeah. The fourth mark stood from 1813 to 1830. At that time, the two forts returned to an original site, and then in 1821, the Hudson Bay Company merged with the rival Northwest Company, and the Fort Augustus name was dropped. Finally, in the 1830s, the fifth and final mark of Fort Edmonton was completed. The fort had to be moved to higher ground after severe flood, and it is this site where the Alberta Legislature building now sits. Through the years, several noteworthy explorers came through or stayed at the fort. James Sinclair, son of the Hudson's Bay Company president, twice led large parties of settlers halfway across Canada, from the Red Valley to the Columbia Valley. In 1859, the 9th Earl of Southex visited on his way to the Rocky Mountains, hoping that the fresh mountain air would improve his health. From 1870 to 1885, the fort was under the threat of Indian warfare quite regularly. The Cree chief, Maskipitan, was killed during a battle with the Blackfoot. Fifteen years later, the fort was in the middle of the Northwest Rebellion. The Edmonton telegraph wire was cut, and settlers went behind the old wooden palisade, but luckily they were not attacked. In 1915, the fort was demolished. The fort was reconstructed in 1966 as a way for families to enjoy the history and named Fort Edmonton Park. Tanya shared that the fort has streets named after historical dates and time that represent the different periods of 1885, 1905, and 1920. People can take a train or the old streetcar for a ride. They can stroll leisurely or stop to have a bite to eat. They have delicious ice cream and treats, and there is a visitor center when you first walk up to the park. The fort was built from material spanning all the marks. Buildings from the other periods were found and moved to the parks as well. For this reason, people believe that it has caused spirits to be attached to Fort Edmonton Park. And Denise, this is one of those things that we talk about is when we, as we read these different hauntings that are going on here, it's as if something has attached to materials or to these houses, but not specifically because somebody has died in this location, at least that we know of. 
right? That they just come with whatever material was brought or or maybe even followed a person there and then just kind of stayed too. And I have to say, I'm kind of confused when we talk about the materials that were used for each of the marks, because I don't think that these were materials that actually are from those actual forts. I don't know for sure, but it didn't seem to me like these were. So I don't know that the fort has anything that's attached to it because it used the wood from a previous fort. Oh, that's a good point, Diane. In 2003, a group was visiting the Fort Edmonton Park, and they were touring the Firkins house. Dr. Firkins and his family built the home in 1912. It is Edwardian in style. As the group took a picture near the Firkins children's bedrooms, the pictures revealed the image of a purple-eyed figure sitting on the bed after it was developed. Also, the group saw a small boy playing with a red ball. There were no children in the group, but no one felt it was a threat. The boy has also sometimes been described as a teenager. Hunting experiences started with the Firkins house back when it was first moved. Rumors were already being whispered that the home was haunted. When construction crews moved it and restored it, they claimed that their tools were moved around or went missing and that window panes would go up and down unassisted. What is responsible for the hauntings is unknown. The Firkins had daughters and no one had died in the home. So there's this legend that goes with Dr. Firkins that supposedly he was this evil, weird guy that had tortured his son until he died. And possibly the reason was because there was this magic book that the son had found. And so this was his punishment that he was giving to that son. But again, Dr. Firkins didn't have a son, at least that we know of. Right. Well, we do know back in that time period, a lot of times if some if a child was born with mental illness or deformities, they would lock them away so that nobody knew about them and kind of keep them as a caged animal, so to speak. So that could be a possible explanation. Or, of course, it could have just been somebody who was trying to court one of his daughters. <laughs> All of that is just conjecture. We don't know. <laughs> That's a history according to Denise and Diane. But we have no idea why people are seeing a, a male child in this home because... Right. As far as we know, there was not a male child that had died here. So we have no answer to that. But quite possibly it could be a legend that was started by one of these paranormal shows out there. In the study library, the group witnessed a female entity form in the middle of the bookcase. Another picture caught an orb with the face of a male inside. There are reports throughout the park of people feeling eerie energy coming from the windows of the buildings. The staff report unexplained thumps, footsteps, and feeling that someone is standing behind them. This location was featured on Creepy Canada due to its haunted reputation. And I would like to point out that that show is now defunct. And it seems that they like to embellish. Yeah, they like to embellish stories a bit. So employees claim that several items on the show were fabricated, which included a haunted ventriloquist doll and that book of magic that supposedly the son had found. And that's why he was tortured and killed or what have you. And most employees say that nothing haunted is going on anywhere in the park. So if you ask the uh, the role-playing actors who do the Mr. and Mrs., or I should say Dr. and Mrs. Ferkins, they'll say, there's nothing haunted here. We've never experienced anything. So I don't know who the employees are that feel the creepy stuff or if they just won't admit it because they don't want to talk about that kind of thing. Something's going on there, though, because there's got to be a reason why Creepy Canada would want to come check it out. Exactly. So, are the spirits of the explorers from the past still clinging to the fort? Could spirits have followed their moved homes to this new location? Is there something about the land in connection to the indigenous people who once lived here, causing the weird feelings people have at this location? Is Fort Edmonton haunted? 
That is for you to decide. Well, I guess we're going to have to go check it out, Denise, and find out for ourselves. Um, I will definitely put my vote in for that. I love to travel. And Tanya's been there several times, and she said that she had never felt anything weird there. So we're going to have to send her back there and say, see if she feels something. Well, of course, she could be like me. I've been to how many haunted places, and I'm still like, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing's happening here. I'm not tempting the spirits, though, just in case any of them happen to be listening. And we certainly wouldn't send Tanya to tempt the spirits. (laughs) Oh, no, we would not. (laughs) But we would love to join her for some of that delicious ice cream. I'm there for that. Oh, all the way. On our very next show, Denise, we have the big number... 100. Yes, our official 100th episode. We've done several more than just 100 episodes if you count our Xmas specials and the road trip specials that we've done. But this will be our official 100th episode. We are going to go to the wickedest town in the Old West. And where is that town? You'll find out when you tune in. Exactly. It's on the 100th Meridian. And that number 100 is pretty significant. So we'll explain all of that on the very next podcast. We're going to be joined by Stephen Pappas. And my mother is going to join us again for that one. Yes. So Anne's student will be back on the microphone. And I will let people know that we have re-recorded this because apparently we had some kind of weird sound anomaly. I had an issue when I was editing the show. It completely, I was almost done. And then the program froze up, shut down and seemed to swallow what I had done. And so I re-edited it, loaded everything up, and the sound was horrible on the back half of the show. It was like after you got done with this day in history, it was overdriven, and I don't know what happened. So I wonder if we got a little ghost in the system there, a little gremlin in the system. I'm not sure. We're going to cut off the re-recording here. So anything that you hear past this is going to have kind of a tinny sound to it and sound like we're talking out of a tin can as we go through the email that we got and also discuss our design contest. So I apologize. Please bear with that sound, but I didn't want to have to re-record all of that as well. So thank you for your patience with that. And here you go. And here is Julie Rathsack joining me to explain a little bit more about the Ada Witch and some of her own personal experiences. Well, Julie, I thought, first of all, we could start off with you telling everybody a little bit about your guys' tour group and a little bit about your book, too. My goodness, the book came out almost two years ago already. We basically, Rob Duchesne and Nicole Bray Duchesne wrote the book with me. We had actually all been... Rob and Nicole had written a couple different books. They did a Haunted Kalamazoo book, Haunted Lansing, but this was the first one that I went in on with them. When I was growing up in Grand Rapids, I cannot even tell you the number of times I collected ghost stories over the years. Uh, so I had a lot of interesting little notes written down at home. <laughs> so a lot of these places that have the reputation of being haunted, I already had a lot of stories written down about. So it was a great little trio for us to all get together. You know, we all loved the research and enjoyed getting it together. When did you start the tour group? We started the tour group about, oh goodness, I want to say we started doing, in 2013, we started with the Grand Rapids tours. Prior to that, Rob and Nicole had actually done tours in Kalamazoo. Okay, very cool. So I have to ask, have you had any paranormal experiences yourself? I have. I actually grew up in a haunted house. Oh, wow. Um, I 
would actually see apparitions walking. I remember one time I was talking on the phone to a friend in this gigantic, probably about the size of a softball, a ball flew out of my parents' closet and just hovered in the middle of the room for probably about 30 seconds and then took off down the hallway. Whoa. Yeah, we got a, a message. I don't, I don't know if I, I, I endorsed the Ouija board, but we were playing on one at, mm-hmm. when I was younger. And uh, of course, that's when everything became really active. <laughs> Oops. Uh, <laughs> it kind of lit things up, shall we say. In addition, to uh, a lot of teenage angst going on because we had seven kids in the house. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of energy there. Yeah. Uh, but we actually had Spirit come across telling us we have who's here and it spelled out Kowalski. And coincidentally, later on when we were going through some old uh, church directories because the house was a block away from a church, uh, we actually found previous owners that lived there and their last name was Kowalski. And it turned out that the man actually died in the house. Whoa. Yeah, so that was kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's affirmation that it's really happening. Exactly. Wow. I thought that you could share with the listeners a little bit of that extra information that you had shared over at the Spectacular Crew about the Ada Witch, because we'd been asking, why do they call her a witch? And you had an answer for us. <laughs> well, because it makes for a very good ghost story. That's why they call her a witch. <laughs> if it was just a plain old person, nobody would want to hear it, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, basically, they're, you know, when the stories came out, and they've been around for quite some time, the local population was very superstitious. So they just started, they saw an apparition or the rumor of an apparition, and they automatically assumed it was a witch. So there's absolutely, we've done tons of research on it. There's absolutely nothing to prove that she was a witch or that the person they're referring to ever even existed as far as the murder. Sarah McMillan, the the person that this fly-by-night ghost group who deemed Sarah McMillan that ate a witch, Mm -hmm. um, she is definitely not the person. We did... You know, we looked up her name. Uh, The woman actually died. The real Sarah McMillan actually died elsewhere. There was no record of her death in the county. We found out that she had actually died and been returned home to be buried with her family in Ada. Her husband, you know, obviously if she was killed with her husband, you'd assume that his grave would be nearby or, you know, at least in the cemetery. Sure. Um, Her husband, Archibald, actually died in 1932, many years later. So he is not even buried with her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've actually spoken with people who are related to people there. And they said that I, when I told them, you know, what was going around, they were just absolutely flabbergasted. The whole thing kind of came about because we were interested in trying to get her a new stone because her stone was just sad. Sure. <laughs> there was, I, I posted a couple pictures. There were probably about two inches of stone left above ground. There was a couple people that were selling pieces of it. You know, and then you get the the tough kids that go in in the middle of the night and I'm going to break the witch's stone. Yeah. yeah. So they chipped away at it. We found a very cool company named Moa Granite who said that they would donate a stone. So we basically worked with the cemetery. Um, We worked with the local police. Who, might I add, while we were getting the stone changed out, was telling us some stories that they've had. Um, And it was a lot of the same thing, you know colored orbs, people calling because they're seeing a woman in white on the road. So they verified a couple of the stories of, you know, the urban legends that we've heard and Mm -hmm. some of the backup. Uh, So that was kind of cool. It's Um, always neat when you hear from them because they're not going to make that stuff up because they're kind of reluctant to share it. They know they look crazy. (laughs) Exactly. But no, they definitely clarified a couple things and verified some. And well, it was very cool that you shared those pictures. And it looks yeah. like the company who installed it, they made sure to put it really deep into the ground. Well, so that they did. They told us that they, they had put over, I believe they said that there was like 
two feet of cement underneath it. And they made sure that puppy was in there. (laughs) It's not going anywhere anytime soon. Well, very good. Before we end the show, Denise, we do want to share an email here, and we do want to get listeners' feedback on this. We got this from David. He said, I've been listening to your podcast and others. I like it, and it seems to me that many of the alleged encounters and things like portals must deal in metaphysics. So let me tell you this true but factual story. I was a skydiver for about 10 years. In September of 1985, there was a plane crash in Jenkinsburg, Georgia, in which 17 friends of mine were killed when the airplane lost power at about 600 feet. The pilot messed up and stalled it, and it hit the ground like a big lawn dart. I was skydiving, actually in an airplane at another drop zone when the crash occurred. I was very close to a couple of people who were killed and friends and acquaintances and others. Very bad day. So about two years later, I have this dream. I'm at the drop zone in Rome, Georgia, which is where I was when the crash happened. I'm sitting on the grass in the packing area where we pack our rigs, and it was a nice, warm day, and I could feel the sun on my back, a light breeze, and smell our jump plane, the aviation gasoline smell, the dirt, grass, and hear the popping sounds of the airplane's engine as it cooled. I was watching my fiancé at the time, and she was walking around looking for four-leaf clovers. I swear, she could find them in the Sahara if she wanted. I felt so good, so happy, and in love. I hear a voice say, You did good, man. And I knew he meant in finding her. I looked over to my right, and next to me was a good friend who died in the crash, who did not live long enough to ever meet her. I said with all sincerity, Thanks, Soap. Soapy was his nickname. Then I woke up a little freaked out. And then he goes on to share that he and this his fiance they did get married, but they eventually got divorced and such. So his question that he wanted to put out there is, do you all think my dream was just a dream? Or was this some metaphysical paranormal event? I think the former, but wish it could be the latter. So, Denise, I wanted to ask, what did you think about? What would be your opinion, your response to David on that? That one, I'm not sure, because it happened during slumber, so, and he went somewhere else, so I don't, I don't know. Do you think it was just a dream, or do you think that this guy really visited him in his dream? I don't know. I believe people can visit, or things can happen in dreams that can let you know things, so I think, I think he might have been visited in the dream. I had written back to him, and I said, thanked him for his question, and of course expressed our condolences in losing so many friends and stuff. We're certainly not experts, but we have no doubt that the dead can visit us in dreams. Not only have we heard similar stories, but we've heard people more knowledgeable than us claim that we are vulnerable to spiritual attack when we sleep. Perhaps you've heard of sleep paralysis. If spirits with bad intent can get to us in our sleep, then it reasons that friendly spirits can as well. We believe your friend was bringing you a comforting message. Another key is how real it felt to you, as though you were there. So for me, because of the way he described it, that he could smell the grass and the dirt. He could hear the popping of the engine on the airplane as it was cooling down. I've never had really graphic experiential dreams like that. To me, it almost seems as though he went remotely to this location and that his friend was there. And he said he couldn't have gone too far back in time because his friend passed away before he met the fiance. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. It's just, it was a weird thing. And he said that he, he's a skeptic. So he's not really sure because he says, I'm a rather hard to convince skeptic. Then he sent me another email. Huh, I'm wondering why the focus was on his fiance and you did good, man. And I think he was confused because they end up getting divorced. So it wasn't going to go good. But I don't believe that spirits know our future. 
Well, he, he said that Soapy had a girlfriend who had graduated from Georgia Tech with a chemical engineering degree. She was named Ann Bolin. She was decapitated in the crash, which is kind of weird because that's the same name as King Henry VIII's wife who he had decapitated. Oh, that's very... Isn't that weird? Very weird. And he says, I think if this was something other than just a vivid dream, then that does give me more hope of some kind of afterlife beyond the Christian ideas of heaven and hell. And then he went on to say, but if you all remember the crash of Eastern Airline Flight 401, a supposed ghost who was one of the flight crew supposedly said to someone, there will never be another crash of an uh, L-1011, the airliner designation. Well, he was wrong. Delta Flight 191 went down just short of the runway at DFW. So... This, if true, gives me doubt. I guess in the end, it's all kind of moot. We'll all find out sooner or later ourselves. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we could zoom through space and time, find out what happened really to Amelia Earhart, one of my heroes growing up, or the Navy blimp L8, maybe see Saturn, Jupiter, etc. close up. And, you know, just kind of going with that, where our beliefs come from, because I don't think things are foretold in the future, but I think people can come back to us regarding the past, because the future hasn't happened yet. And I know Diane feels the same way. So I wouldn't give up hope just because that whatever was said by that spirit was wrong about the the crash, because that was a future crash. If they'd been wrong about a crash in the past, then maybe. Exactly. And I just emphasize that we don't really know until we get there. Exactly. (laughs) And apparently we aren't able to come back and very specifically tell people exactly what's going on. Kind of like we say a UFO needs to land on the lawn of the White House for us all to believe that UFOs exist. Same thing if a ghost is going to tell us exactly what happens in the afterlife, it's going to have to be a press conference in the White House or some location like uh, outside of St. Peter's Basilica or something in Rome. Or <laughs> Why would it have to be at one of those places? Why couldn't it be at Walt Disney World? <laughs> well, I could too, but they'd probably think that Walt Disney World would put something on. Oh, that's true. With that's all their magical stuff that the they were celebrating the Haunted Mansion or something in that way. So we just want to put that out to our listeners. What do you guys have to think? You can either comment in the Spectacular Crew about it or send us an email and we'll share that stuff with David. And what do you guys think about his dream? Yes, please share. Then, Denise, as most people know, we do a monthly drawing now because we've reached our threshold of $100 a month for us to be doing contests. And we thought we need to do something unique, something that people can't just purchase in our emporium. So we thought it'd be cool to have a specially designed exclusive T-shirt that people could win for the contest. So Denise came up with this idea for our design contest. Since I'm not an artist, we're putting it out there to our artistically inclined people of the Spooktacular crew or our listeners of History Goes Bump. So for this contest, the criteria for the shirt design is going to include a palm tree, a ghost, and the words History Goes Bump. And with either of those, you could have more than one, like one ghost or one palm tree, but at least one of each. And then we thought after the year was up, we would make that design available for people to be able to go get in the Emporium. But the next year, there's going to be a new contest and a new design with different criteria. So the design will kind of travel to all different kinds of locations. Different theming. So this one, we're going to have a palm tree. Next one could be something else. Yeah, because history goes bump. We want the first one to start at the heart of Central Florida. All right, so your entry needs to be submitted to us by February 13th. My lucky day. And you can do that by sending your entry to historyghostbump at gmail.com. It needs to be either in a PNG or JPG format, and we would like it to be about 1,500 by 1,500 pixels so that we can shrink it down to a size that 
works without losing resolution and such. Contest winner will win. We don't have a lot of money here, so it's going to be a $25 prize. You will get full credit for your design and, of course, bragging rights. And our judge is Denise. So you got to butter her up. So I like dolphins. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Just It'll just be great to have the designs coming in. So that'll be fun. And I know one of our listeners, Leanna, she'd already jumped in and said, I have this great idea for design. It's hilarious but I'm not an artist, so I need some help. So if some people need some help coming up with an idea, I know Leanna has one. And then we want to read some of our recent reviews. We got a five-star review from Laura Pullman. I just started listening to HGB. It was recommended by the Bizarre States podcast, and I'm hooked. I've just started listening this morning, and I'm already through five episodes. Can't wait to listen to more. Thank you for helping my workday go faster. Well, thank you, Laura, for that. We also have Lauren Passett listening to friends talk about spooky places, five stars. I'm a big-time podcast listener. I work from home, so I don't have any other people chatting away, so it can get pretty quiet here. I like to listen to podcasts to fill the empty space. The ladies are very conversational. I like that. Maybe some people don't. If you start at the very beginning, stick with them. They iron out the audio issues after a few episodes. The hosts approach the topics more like believers rather than skeptics. I'm pretty skeptical, but I appreciate and enjoy the episodes. It's just more fun this way. Thanks. Well, thank you, Lauren. We appreciate that. And Celesco, I think is how you say that. Love this podcast. Five stars. I love all things ghostly and historical. Really enjoy listening to this podcast with my nine-year-old. I think both ladies are easy on the ears, and they make my kitchen chores less of a chore. Well, thank you for that. We love helping people out at work or at home doing your chores. And isn't it nice that she feels like she can have her nine-year-old listen to the show? Absolutely. And we definitely want to keep it that way so families can listen. We want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Thank you for your support. Thank you so much. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes... One society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13. Rebuilding society, one podcast at a time.